Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullett. Alexa, you texted me earlier to say that in honor of our special guest, you had gotten an especially exciting beer. Is that true? Yes. Um, I actually have multiple choices, but the one that I chose for our first drink today is called the Sour Continuum with Blueberry. It's a sour ale, and it's from Six Bridges Brewing, which is brewed in Atlanta. Um, And I got it in Atlanta because we were in Atlanta for SPSB, which is our big area conference. So that's where I was last weekend. Um, And yeah, I stocked up on some cool beer for the podcast. But apparently... Yoel did not. No, I, I went to the beer store earlier today. I didn't have the presence <laughs> of mind to put beer. In. Did you put beer in your suitcase? Like, how did you actually get it back with you? Oh, well, um, I drove t- from um, Tuscaloosa oh. to Atlanta. It's only like three hours. So it was easier to, to do that kind that of That makes sense. All right, let's introduce our mystery guest. So for the fourth time on our show, uh, we have, we're honored to have Paul Bloom, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor Emeritus of Psychology at Yale University. Paul studies how children and adults make sense of the world with special focus on pleasure, morality, religion, fiction, and art. In part, Paul's here to talk about his new book, uh, Psych, which is actually his his seventh. Is that is that right? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, thank you for having me. Today's launch wow. day. Wow, yeah. Okay, so obviously our listeners can't, hear this today. But if they were able to hear it today, they could just go to Amazon and, and buy this book right now, couldn't they? Yep. Yep. But uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't hold back on that. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but thank you for having me on. I'm very, I'm, you know, excited about launch day. And I was really actually happy to be, to be with you guys, uh, you know, the people I, I know and like in a podcast I know and like, and just. Uh, is this fancy here. outfit you're wearing? Uh, is this launch day related? It is. I got a green blazer. And for me, green is a big step because I'm very unimagined. So this is a real bold thing. This is the equivalent of me wearing like the Riddler jumpsuit. <laughs> this is like a style statement. The only time I see people wear green blazers, isn't that a golf thing? Are you trying to pre- no. pretend that you're... Well, now, now I feel like I'm eating. <laughs> I don't know. Are you, it's I, always I, been I, my I, dream to look like a famous golfer. I taught my class wearing this blazer last night. And you're saying you thought I was a, like, well, a actually, golfer? I have a green blazer. So if it would make you feel better, I would put it on for the podcast. No one would benefit except for you and you will. But I, I, I'm afraid our listeners are getting the wrong idea here. It's like it's a very <laughs> subdued green. In fact, I kind of thought it was a gray. Now that you've said it's green, I can. It's yeah. almost gray. Yeah. yeah. So like when Paul says he's going crazy, um, it, you know, don't, don't imagine the Riddler jacket. Imagine like a very classy, almost gray, like subtly not gray jacket. Okay, so I guess before I forget and we like go off into the main uh, topic, let's let's do more beer talk. So Alexa, we heard about yours already. Um, I so I feel like okay, this is not as cool as having brought something back from Atlanta, but I did stop by and actually try and pick up some interesting beers as opposed to just scrounging around in my fridge for more Coronas or whatever it is. Um, so this is a, a beer from Refined Fool Brewing Company based in Sarnia. Ontario, uh, and it is called Van Full of Weirdos Juicy IPA. And there is, in fact, a Van Full of Weirdos. I don't know if you can see wow. here. There's the, the weirdos. Okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, Paul, what have you got? Um, this is from Greg. I went to the beer store, which I'd never been to before, and the, the creepiest man, Pat, pushed past me as I walked in. I wouldn't have thought alcoholics would drink beer, but he was very, he was crazed and, and, and seemed to be 
Anyway, so I was, and then the place, anyway, so I grabbed something and then ran out, but it's great by Great Lakes Brewery and it's called Canuck Pale Ale, which captures my Canadian, my new Canadian home. Canadian pale pride. Ale. It wasn't the beer store on Spadina, was it? Uh, Dundas. Oh, okay. Yeah, I find that the beer store is often full of weirdos. It was full, it was really it was a very strange and unpleasant yes, place. Yes, it is. This is an Ontario thing. Well, I mean, Alexa, you you look confused, and I don't know why because you're from here. Yeah, I'm trying to to bring back my memories of going to the beer store. I don't think I went that often, actually. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think I, I ran into too many weirdos at the beer store. I remember going to bring back our um, glass bottles. I think. There's much I, there's much I love about Canada, but the fact that the alcohol, the liquor stores seem to be run by the state is very negative. Um, back in New Haven and other places I've lived in the States, there's just a range of liquor stores with all sorts of cool things. And this seems to be run by the government, uh, the LCBOs and maybe the, the beer, beer store. Is- actually, so I think the LCBO is actually a bit nicer than the beer store. So the beer store is yes, it's all much, yeah, much nicer. Yeah, so those are the government run ones and the beer stores actually are private but they have this like exclusive franchise from the government. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whereas in California where I grew up, you could literally walk into like a Ralph's and uh buy tequila. It's amazing. <laughs> I remember moving to America and and um, realizing that. Yeah, phenomenal. All right. Well, uh, are we are mm. we ready it's to crack these? Yeah. Oh, you 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 you've gotten ahead of yourself already. Okay. Well, we're Alex and I are going to do it. Okay. I didn't hear a thing. Oh, I'll, I'll you know amp it up in post. Don't worry, because okay. it's it zooms noise canceling. Ooh, it's got blueberries on the can. How how is it, Alexa? It's very good. Yeah, the I would say that the blueberry flavor is like noticeable but pretty subtle. Um, and yeah, it's like very light and yeah, mm. it's good. It uh, that looks great. Uh, mine is it's nice. It's sort of a, like a citrusy IPA. Um, it's pretty strong, and it's like this big can. You can't get the small cans anymore. You have a small can, Alexa. I tried to get a small can. I do. Yeah. I I looked deliberately for small cans because I really can't drink like a big can and then another beer after that. So I thought like there maybe was a chance that I could drink two beers or at least like one and a half if I did the small cans. So smart. Um, yeah, I can't hang with these big beer cans. This is pretty large and it tastes beer. <laughs> it doesn't taste Canadian. <laughs> I'd say pale ales are the beeriest of the beers. I agree with that. Okay. So, um, we have a ton to talk about. I, I, I'm curious to start with uh, kind of a meta question, which is, I, I looked up, you know, um, as I said when I was introducing you, this is your seventh book, um, and I actually had to look up, you know, which number book it was, and I discovered that for your for book number six, you visited us to talk about it in part. Uh, that was episode seventy four, and we're now at episode a hundred and something. So. In the time that it took us to do roughly 25 episodes, you wrote an entire book, which to me seems insane. So you know, given that like academics often struggle to write, like how are you doing this? Well, there's a one there's a one word answer, uh, COVID. So this is my this is my COVID book. This is um I found myself in, in lockdown in an apartment in downtown Toronto and I figured I would write, um, I would spend that time writing a new book. And I figured, I actually, this book is not what I expected it would be. I've taught intro psych 
at Yale. I had an online course, the Coursera course I'm teaching at U of T. So I had notes. An online course actually had notes. So I honestly figured this would just be a quick one and maybe make some money and, and just do it easy, which is I would just take down my notes, just, just put them on print and then just edit them. And it would be a little book, like 40,000 words. And um, anyway, it's not what happened. It just got bigger and bigger and bigger. It is not a little my, book. It is not a little book. It is kind of a hefty book. My I biggest was describing this to my to my partner before we did this podcast. She was like, what is the, the topic for today? And I was like, oh, you know, um, Paul Bloom wrote a book about like basically encapsulating his intro psych class. And then I had the thought, like, why not write a textbook? Like how, like, how did you decide to write this as a popular book instead of writing it as a textbook? I have absolutely no interest in writing a textbook. <laughs> Textbooks are enormous. They, uh, they, you know, m- like million words or whatever. They're enormous. They require tons of illustrations and graphics. They have to be reader friendly. And they have to be, even the best textbooks have to be kind of homogenized. They, there are certain materials they have to cover in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write a more enjoyable book that someone interested in psychology just pick up and and read and so i'm not obligated to have 30 pages on the auditory system and you know i'm just it, it is it is a, it is a big book for me i was missing it's the auditory kind of, system honestly that's one one of my favorite things <laughs> yeah there's stuff in my book to disappoint everybody i could <laughs> i could like entertain you with a list of all the things my book doesn't cover <laughs> and and it would be like the worst advertising ever because <laughs> as soon as i say them it sounds interesting like people say oh you wrote a book you talk about eating disorders no, not at all. You talk about there's a lot of things I don't talk about. Carl Jung, very interesting. So along those it. lines, um, is there like can you think of one or two things where you're like, oh, I wish I had been able to fit this in, and maybe you even wrote part of it and try, and then 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 it just didn't work. The book has everything I wanted it to be. I was never sort of said, oh, I've run out of time or I can't make it any bigger. It includes everything I wanted to have it. Um, I purposely did not include that much on moral psychology because I covered it in other books. And if there's one part of the book that could have had more attention, it was over controversies over the emotions. So I have a chapter on the emotions where I talk about disgust and anger and I talk about gratitude and love and I talk about morality in that chapter. But there's big debates in the field over whether there are basic emotions, how many emotions are there, whether they're continua, whether they're discrete. And I just tried to, to, to cover that literature, and I ultimately realized I couldn't do a good job on it, and I left it for now. Yeah, that's that's actually um, brings up something that I hadn't thought to ask, but um, that must have come up for you, which is what is too inside baseball? So my first reaction was like, I, yeah. well, maybe that's just too technical for a, a general interest book. At the same time, there are research controversies that – you talk about and that are interesting and relevant for a reader who, you know, isn't an academic. So how did you make those calls? Yeah, there, there's a lot like say the James Lang theory of the emotions. There's there's different theories of emotions, and they're very inside baseball in that they're theories nobody now believes. They're of historical value, but they're extreme views that are often weird. I tried to have no with one big exception, I tried to have no inside baseball. I had to try to make it into my book. Everything had to be interesting. It had to be the sort of thing you, it may be, it may be complicated, it may be abstract. Like, you know, how do neurons communicate with each other? It's kind of a, you know, maybe not an everyday practical question, but it's kind of cool. It had to pass that test. It can't just be the sort of thing only specialists care about. The one exception is I have a section on the replication crisis. 
Now, I'm not sure that that's inside baseball in the right sense, but instead of being a topic of psychology, it's about the endeavor of psychology itself. And um, and 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 I and I, I realized I could, the book would not be complete without talking about the problems we have in our fields that you, you two have discussed extensively in all sorts of ways. And so it's, it, I think that the thing is called um, the crisis or something. Mm-hmm, right. A brief note on a crisis. Yeah. Actually, that makes me makes me think. So as I was looking through um, the table of contents before I began reading, I was sort of like looking at what sort of jumped out to me. And I was curious, Yoel, was there like a chapter or a couple of chapters where you were like, these are the ones I'm pumped about. So to be honest, I didn't even look at the table of contents. I just started at page <laughs> one and I read from there. Um, but looking back, the stuff that I was surprisingly excited about, um, the chapter on Freud and uh, the chapter on on behaviorism. And these are things that you know, I learned maybe in intro psych, um, maybe not even that. I don't. I don't honestly know how much Freud was covered. And I was like, oh, this stuff is cool. Like even if it's super wrong, like most of Freud um, empirically, it's just it's just neat, and it's not something that I encounter kind of in everyday life. Like as I'm reading papers, here. I agree. In some way, Freud's the opposite of inside baseball, where many working psychologists would never say, to, "No, who cares about Freud?" and and um, even people in the areas I've meant of clinical psychology might say, who cares? But everyone outside of psychology cares about Freud, his interest in Freud. And I actually have sort of a fondness of Freud. I give him kind of a beating for his a lot of his weird views. But I think he got a lot of things right. But let me ask both of you. you if you were writing this book, you could, what would you throw out or more interesting? What would you put in? What's missing? Hmm, that's a great question. Um I, I would definitely have had a longer crisis chapter, probably not surprisingly. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and then let's see. I I also like the I like that you talk about Freud and um, I for the first time, well, except for like the very very like short attention that we give to Freud in in intro psych, I taught a, a liberal arts class last semester. And the way that it's taught, like multiple teachers teach it and they contribute materials. And so they were like, oh, finally, we have a psychologist. She can teach us like she can tell us how to teach Freud, which is on the on the syllabus. And I was like, I've never read Freud. (laughs) Um, But it was really interesting to read Freud and also like uh, tough to get through. Um, But yeah, yeah, I thought it was it was interesting. So maybe I would after that experience throw a bit of Freud in there as you did. Yeah, so my answer is is terrible for a book for normal people, which is why you're writing them, not me. But I like I love the historical stuff, like I said already, and so I, I would have mm-hmm. wanted more of that, right? And there's there's a lot of super interesting history of psychology that, again, this is not stuff that I really encounter day to day, but that's just fascinating once you get into it. No, there, there there's great stories which I left out. There's a, the, you know the introspectionists and the Gestalt psychologists, and I just mentioned in passing, Freud's the only historical figure I get into. So occasionally, in the middle of a chapter in like social psychology, I have you know there's Freud again, or there's Piaget meets Freud, and so so it's sort of like um, in the Woody Allen film uh, Zelig, where he pops up in all sorts of places. So Freud plays that role, but I and I and I talk about William uh-huh. James, who I I really. My wonderful, but you're right. There, I, I don't put any serious effort into a history of psychology. Yeah, but that would be a really different book, and it would be a lot longer, and it would be harder to read. And this is this is not meant to be that, right? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, I've talked to a lot of people who teach intro psych, and there's different ways of doing it. 
I know people, some people don't have Freud at all, for instance, or Skinner at all. Some people have, you know, a whole section on how animals learn language. It's, 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 I think there are some things that we should, we, that would, should end up in any book and any course, but then there's a lot of things you can, you can go different ways on. Yeah. So you make a bit of an argument for including Freud, like why Freud is relevant. Yeah. Well, tell us what that is. Um, so one argument is that, that Freud plays an enormous role in popular culture, including how people, everyday people think about the mind, whether they know it or not. So if you ever say about somebody, he has an anal personality. Or you 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 say to your partner, "I'm not your mother," or something like that. You're you're channeling Freudian ideas, whether you know it or not. Um, I think a lot of what Freud said is just ridiculous. The stuff on penis envy and castration anxiety and the primal scene this this moment in every child's life where they witness their parents coupling and it transforms them psychologically. This is crazy stuff, but. But then you get to the sort of very big idea about the centrality of the unconscious. And Freud, even Freud, even Freud, who is an enormous ego, admitted he wasn't the first one there. But, but the idea that our actions, our decisions, everyday decisions like, you know, who, who we fall in love with, uh, what we do for a living, are shaped by factors that we are unaware of, is part of how everyday psychologists think about things. And I think we are tremendously indebted to Freud. Like, if you want to know why people voted for Trump or why people voted for Biden, no psychologist be satisfied just by asking mm-hmm. people. Because we would say, well, you might think that's why, but maybe you don't know why. And I think, I think that Freud developed the notion of unconscious motivation more than anybody else and deserves credit for that. Yeah. I, I mean, a, as you said, uh, he was wrong about all the details. Um, yes. And I... I love the story that you give in the book about the woman's dream about the penis hat. Can you just can you tell the penis hat story? <laughs> oh my god, I don't I don't know if I remember. She she dreams she's wearing a hat. Yeah, like a weird floppy hat and it has like a a part that sticks up and then it has like some parts that dangle down. Yes. And then while she's wearing the hat, men on the street do not bother her because of the hat. And then Freud says, that's a, a penis. And the idea is that if your lover had such a mighty penis, you'd be so satisfied with it. And, you know, and it's, I don't know if it's part of the point there is, is it wrong? Is it right? There's no way to find out. <laughs> the, the, the one of the, there's sort of two inconsistent complaints about Freud. I think are something both, both correct. One is that he's just wrong about things. Like, you know, his theory is that if a kid comes from a broken family, parent, mother dies, father, kid will become, always the boy, become gay because of exaggerated castration anxiety. Well, you know, you want to put that to the test. You could, you could do a study and it probably won't be right. But the other problem with him, which I think is deeper, is that, is that his claims are so extravagant that they, they're never open to empirical tests, his right, empirical yeah. claims. Like, how do you know whether the dream interpretation is right or wrong? Yeah. And I think part of that makes it collapse as a scientific enterprise. But, but oh my God, interpretation of dreams fully is incredible. And it's like there's an anti-parsimony thing, which is you have a perfectly a dream. You say, oh, okay, well, you got a hat, and then it's always a penis, and, and it's always it's it's always this crazy stuff. Like, like there, there's a scene, there, there's a little part that isn't passing, where um where he talks about a, about a sort of a, 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 a well-mannered man, I think he's an academic, who carefully adjusts his trousers when he sits down on the sofa. And then Freud says, well, plainly, he's a corpophiliac, 
which is somebody with an, an obsession with his own feces. Like, oh, plainly. Obviously, clearly. Who can doubt it? If only we all had the insight that Freud does into our, our unconscious. Um, I, I have what I think is a related question. So you say that you don't cover too many historical figures in the book. Um, you you pitch it, I think, pretty broadly as a story um, about the knowledge that we've accumulated about us as human beings. Um, but also you acknowledge at various points in the book um, the weird nature of most participants and researchers. And by weird, I mean the acronym. So uh, Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Um, and so I was wondering, like in in writing a book that's supposed to be this sort of broad summary, um, did you uh, how did you sort of tackle this um, while, yeah, sort of acknowledging the limitations of the population of researchers and also the population of participants that went into this? Yeah, it's a good question, something which I, I, I struggled with. Um, early in the book, I talk about cognitive processes and brain structure. And some of that, I think, is has a generality to it that in, it extends beyond humans to other, mm -hmm. other creatures. So the story of human visual perception might not be that different from chimpanzee visual perception. But later, but then I talk about emotions and social, social cognition and mental illness. And that's where the issue of, of our narrow population um, really comes in. I might not be getting, this is from memory, but there's some statistic like a randomly chosen American undergraduate is more than 4,000 times, 4,000 times more likely to be a subject in a study than somebody from outside the West. Mm -hmm. We have such a narrow population. We ourselves are very, uh, almost all psychologists are from mm -hmm. the West. And and Joe Henrik and his colleagues make the case that maybe it wouldn't, it couldn't, maybe, you know, we could have been lucky and it wouldn't matter, but it does seem mm -hmm. to matter. There's all sorts of things that, that all aspects of our psychology, they say it runs through everything that are different. And I talk about this when I talk about the crisis, mm -hmm. and I talk about this when I talk about social psychology. But you could legitimately say, and I hope it does immediately say, that this pervades other things I talk about, like visual perception and memory and language. And because we have, we're from such a limited subject base, the conclusions from those earlier chapters could be called into question too. And I think that's the sort of thing we'll find out. Mm -hmm. Right. So with that in mind, then, when you were sort of deciding what to include in the book, um, did you make any like particular effort to um, include like people from different cultures or um, different backgrounds? Or do you try more to sort of cover the canon, I guess? Um, all of that. So, so to the extent there's cross-cultural work and what interested me, and so language is a good example where there's a lot of research on, um, you know, people who study language learning aren't satisfied looking at how we learn English. We, they study all the languages of the world and there's really good research. I try to do it for that. Um, and, but I also try to get canon, like I, I talked about the famous Milgram experiment and Ash mm -hmm. experiment and these classic studies, which I think are really worth knowing. And then I also struggle with what's replicable and what's not. Um, it's going to be the least surprising thing in the world if somebody goes through my book and says, aha, this study you rest upon doesn't mm -hmm. replicate. It's bound to happen. I, there's no way to, to preclude that. That has happened for so many studies. I, I was in, a, in, in an earlier draft of the book. I talk about the compatibility principle in memory which is that if you learn mm -hmm. something in, a, a, you know, a, a, in, in an auditorium, you'll remember it better 
in an auditorium than, than in a different room. If you learn something when you're kind of cheerful, you remember mm -hmm. better when you're cheerful. The classic study here, which I learned from intro psych, is, um, is they get people on a boat and they learn something. And then, and then they do it underwater. The they go down scuba. And if you learn it underwater, you remember it better underwater. And that's such a clever study. It was in my book. And then I go one day on Twitter. And they say, oh, the study doesn't replicate. We tried it. We can't get it to work. So out it goes. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and I tried my, I, everything in the book I believe to be true. But more than, you know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, an intro physics textbook. It's, uh, this stuff is fragile. I think the broader themes, just uh, so I'm not too defensive, I think the broader themes, like the idea that memory is largely a reconstruction, mm -hmm. are pretty rock solid, that we know stuff about it. But that this particular study by Beth Loftus, for instance, that I cite, is that going to hold up? I don't know. Yeah. So in general, that's something that you must have had to worry about, uh, not just specific to replicability, but for any of these well-known studies, there's a ton of critiques that might be uh, empirical or conceptual. Yep. Um, and then, so how much hedging to do, right? Like you don't want to give people a false sense of uh, confidence in these findings, but at the same time, it would be a very boring book if you like a million caveats for every finding that you describe. Yeah, and that's and that's that's the balance. I don't want to be sloppy. I I read so many books where I see these studies cited. And I I don't believe that, either because it hasn't replicated, or because you know, and you you two have talked about this a lot because it doesn't pass a certain smell test. There's not enough subjects. It's a wily, unintuitive finding. I try not to. On the other hand, if I'm to say, well, you know, uh. <laughs> Here's a study, but we can never know. And here's something that the book would become unreadable. And, and if I really believed that most of the studies I talk about were unreliable, I wouldn't have written a book. You know, you, you, I have, I have some faith in, in some of the best work. And, and a lot of things, there's a lot of aspects of psychology which are particularly fragile. And then there's some that aren't. Um, studies of, uh, you look, visual illusions make a point. And that's, that's so powerful that you don't need studies. Um, there's now these studies of millions of people that have findings about the, say, heritability of personality or the spectrum of mental illness that are really robust. And then, then there's the stuff which is the in-between, and I, and I struggle. Yeah, so you, you mentioned you have a section on the replication crisis, which is sort of unusual, right? Because you don't really have other meta content. That's right. And, and I'll add, by the way, I put that section right before the social psychology section. Well, and that is exactly yeah. where I was going. Um, it is before the social psychology section. And a social psychologist might say, hey, wait a minute, it's unfair. You know, you're tarring us as the irreplicable discipline. And it, that seems uh too hasty. So like, for example, these developmental studies where they have, you know, 20 babies per condition. How, uh, yeah. How do you know those are any better? Right. Why, why write it this way? That implies that, you know, it's social psych that uniquely has the problem. Yeah. Um, in fact, the social psychologist, a prominent social psychologist wrote me in a rage um, about this. He had a nice analogy, which is I'm writing a book about religions. And I say, here's the story of Islam. Here's the story of Christianity. Here's the story of Buddhism. Subsection, why, how religions go wrong and make people evil. Here's the story of Judaism. Well, so, and he said he felt like, like Judaism. That, and um, if I wrote the book again, I would, not, I would probably do it differently. The, the answer to the question why I, I thought of it is because 
as you too well know, the replicate the replication crisis, however however it extends through the rest of psychology, originated in social psychology. I mean, I'm sure historically maybe it was, it was somewhere else at some point, but it's not cognitive psychology or developmental psychology or neuroscience. The social psychologists got hit with enormous, powerful failures to replicate. And on the positive side, the social psychologists have taken the lead in reforming the field. Yeah, see, I had no issue with the placement. I just thought you should have called it the credibility revolution instead of the crisis. Yes. So, so it depends. So, yes, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Or the credibility crisis, <laughs> the replicability revolution. Yeah, the, also psychology, the social psychologist also, who I respect a lot, took umbrage at, at the phrase crisis and, and, and brought up, you know, brought up the really interesting conceptual point, which I think is important, which is, well, how much of our work do we expect to replicate? It's not a hundred percent. Then we wouldn't be a science at all. We'd be doing mathematical proofs, but but my response to him is, you know, and as and again, I'm 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 you know talking about Catholicism to the popes, or to a pope. Anyway, both of you are one pope. But but um, but the reason why the replication crisis exists is at least in part because all of us have been doing lousy, shoddy work in certain regards, p hacking, harking, failing to publish uh, studies that don't work, and so on. Right. And so whatever whatever the replication rate it is, it should be higher. Yeah. I thought that section, um, you know, you can argue about the placement, but I thought it did a good job of conveying the problem um, to a, a lay reader. Uh, and I, I wonder, Alexa, like, so you said you would have made it longer. Like, what what would you have put in there that isn't in there? This becomes tricky because when, I guess, when you're talking to a broad audience, um, first of all, I think it would quickly get to insider and yeah, um, become uninteresting to many people. Um, but I guess, I guess I would have focused more generally on like the limitations to our knowledge. And this is okay. So Paul, you said, you know, if you didn't have faith in these findings, you wouldn't write a book. And probably the answer is that that's, um, that I wouldn't write a book because of that. Um, and for many other reasons too, like I'm not as productive as you during COVID apparently. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you talk in your chapter, A Brief Note on a Crisis, you talk about a couple of limitations of psychology. So you talk about weird samples and weird researchers, and then you also um, talk about limitations to replicability. Um, but you don't talk as much about generalizability. Um, and so like, I also think that there are these, you know, serious limitations to the conclusions that we can draw because of how challenging it is to do research that is generalizable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, like the book that I would write would be um, probably not that enjoyable to read, but I think those things put really serious, yeah, limitations on what we can take from psychology and it would make it hard for me to write, um, yeah, a book that is trying to convey new insights into human behavior based on their research, I guess. I think that's fair enough. I think the generalizability is something that I don't, I try to discuss it in the context of specific issues. So for my social psychology chapter, I do make a point of saying, well, we don't know, maybe this just applies to the West. And then mm -hmm. when I'm talking about um, uh, depth perception, I sort of say these are general computational problems that need to be solved by any creature navigating through space. Um, and when I talk about Freud, I say these are very Victorian issues he dealt with. But but you're right that I don't deal with it in sort of the abstract in that chapter. And you're also right that if you're more skeptical than I am 
about how much our work generalizes, you may be less enthusiastic about this sort of sort of project. Uh, and and that's that's fair enough. And in some ways, like I am enthusiastic about projects like this. Like uh, I enjoyed reading this, you know, and I enjoyed teaching intro psych, and um, I also enjoy teaching history of psych, which I think overlaps in some ways with your book too. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe there's just like sort of an extra level of confidence that it takes in our findings to like write the book, and then I'm not quite there. <laughs> there's a weird, there's a weird thing about writing a popular book, particularly this kind of popular, but any kind of popular book, which is, which is, I really do. I mean, I'll say it before somebody says it about me. I, I, I really do sometimes sit down and say, "Who the hell do I think I am? Like, what, what, what is this, this arrogance of saying, telling you, oh, here, here's how perception works. Here's how language works. Here's in-group, out-group.' And there are times where I feel this sort of shame, this like that that in a hundred years, people are going to write about psychology, and it's going to be so different. And 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 you need to sort of manufacture some enthusiasm in teaching intro psych. You can't just say for everything, well, we're probably wrong. I don't know. Is that a good answer? You're looking at me skeptically. No, I mean, I was just thinking that, you know, the fact that in a hundred years, we'll likely think that many things in a book are wrong. That, that doesn't seem like a good reason to not write it. Right. Yeah. I don't think that that's a good reason not to write it, but it does feel kind of funny. Like even as I was writing the book, if I could go in and edit some parts right now, I have this sort of snarky comment about statistical use, statistical mechanisms of language use. And I talk about the limitations of some AI systems that don't use rules, that use statistics. And then in between, when my book went to press, ChatGPT came out, mm -hmm. which has none of these problems and tends to be statistical. And so, you know, the world, com the world comes at you fast. Yeah, definitely. You know, some places have this saying, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. And I feel like it's a very, very similar sort of situation. If you, if you don't like a finding, just go on Twitter and just wait for a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Or if you don't think a language model can do something, just wait six months. Um, actually, this is uh, – we, we sort of weirdly have a question about this in the notes, which is this idea of like writing and writing with style in a way that – a computer can't yet. I mean, I actually haven't asked ChatGPT to write something in the voice of Paul Bloom, and maybe it would be great at it. But I, what you, I, I haven't. It's not. Oh, it's, <laughs> yeah, of course you have. <laughs> so yeah, how do, how does it turn out if you ask it to write as you? I am. So it writes. It writes as if I'm. It writes as if in his ChatGPT style, um, which maybe means I have no style. Which worries me, or I write like ChatGPT, but it just—it's yeah. not convincing. Well, so this the idea that like we need to be able to write and to write well. Um, I think some folks have looked at ChatGPT and have said this speaks against that in the same way that you're not going to do long division in your head anymore. Um, you're going to use a machine to write your text for you. At the same time, I mean, I feel like there's a pleasure in reading something that's well-written and maybe uh, a benefit to the writer of like sweating it to explain something clearly. So yeah, I, I mean, this is like way beyond your book, but I, I wonder about how is this going to look in 10 years? Are people going to rely on machines to do more and more of our writing and what kind of consequences is that going to have for our thinking? I really wonder that. I've been playing a lot with chat GPT and the writing is 
if you're a second language user struggling with English, the writing is much better than what you do. If you're just in generally a very bad writer, the writing is much better. But it has no style to it. It's plodding and and uninteresting and perfectly serviceable for all sorts of purposes. And it's going to be used more and more for things. I think I think was it was it BuzzFeed that just decided to kind of put a lot of things and just have ChatGPT do it. But but and then the question is, uh, well, there's plenty of room for real, real world writers. Um, there's all these people who I'll, I'll read anything they write because it's funny, it's stylish, it's clever. And I would say, well, that's so that leaves the world safe for those yeah. people. And then I wonder whether in five years from now, these, these systems will write funny, stylish, witty, clever yeah. things. And then that, and then I don't know what the world's going to be like then. Yeah, I I have less fear about that, but it's probably just because I'm naive. Like, I'm like, surely, like, surely a machine can't have style in the way that a human can. I'm sure I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, I also wonder the implications for us spending less time writing, you know. So, you know, some of yeah. the more mundane uses of chat D- G- chat GPT I've heard of are things like, you know, getting it to do some of the background research for you in your intro and then like starting with that and shaping things around that or whatever. Or maybe you're writing like a a report or something where it's not so, so focused on style, but. Or to abstract for a scientific paper. And, you know, it's, it's 120 words and it has to be 80 words and you say. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, But I feel like uh, through the process of writing, for me, I feel like writing helps me to organize my thoughts, I guess. And so maybe in a way, I find like writing and thinking intertwined. Um, and so that makes me worry that if if we get a lot less practice writing and we spend a lot less time or we have less training in writing, um, that it will affect the way that we think. Um, do you fear that? I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really deep point. It's a disanalogy, which is that, you know, there's no benefit to being able to figure out what 12 times 132 is as opposed right. to as a calculator or something like that. But but there is benefit to writing for individuals. I'm thinking for students because we all teach. And I know friends of mine who say, well, the students will use ChatGPT and they'll just, they'll just mold it. They'll just ask it different questions and get it, get it to give the answer, give it the reading response or the essay you want. And maybe that could even be, be constructive. But I think there's so, I think you're exactly right personally and i know a lot of people feel this way writing is how i think putting putting stuff on paper working through the arguments seeing them in front of you and seeing the holes in them seeing that mm-hmm. that what what could pass in speech because you yep. talk fast you wave your hands you tell a joke doesn't fly in print and and is is so writing for me is this enormous intellectual exercise it's one of the many reasons i like writing books because it helps me think about things and it's indispensable right and and to have that taken away from us or or to have us voluntarily cede it to something that because it's so much easier seems to me disastrous. So yeah, so I'm not surprised that that chat GPT can't in um imitate you accurately yet. Um did you develop your ability to write in a particular way? Do you have advice for people who want to become better writers? Um so I I I I like writing. I find it I find it difficult in a good way, but I work very hard to write clearly. I envy, I know people that write beautiful, beautiful prose. You just sit and write it. And for me, I have to rewrite it and go over it and everything. Um, 
I guess the two answers are, I read a lot of books about writing. Mm-hmm. I honestly, it, it, like, um, there's a book called Clear and Simple as the Truth, A Guide to Classic Prose, which is a wonderful book. Um, Steven Pinker has a book called A Sense of Style. Um, uh, Stephen King has a book called On Writing. And there's just good advice. Mm-hmm. Everything from sort of a low-level mechanical advice. Here's the most mechanical suggestion I could ever give, which will improve everybody's writing if you don't already know it. Vary the length of your sentences. Mm. Just look. If all your sentences are roughly 10 words long, it's going to read like crap. Make some short, make some long, vary it, and it sounds cool. So I read a lot of books about writing. And then I read a lot of, I read a lot of people who write in the same way that, that I want to. Like I, uh, I, I, I enjoy reading novelists, but I think, um, nonfiction writers, um, I, I just read, I sort of, I read in a sort of self-conscious way. I just read, I don't know, um, Maria Kornikova's book on poker. And, uh, and it's just wonderful. And I say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that style. Um, people write psychology books like Steven Pinker, who I admire a lot. Um, just, just people, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins on, on biology. Just, just different, different essayists. Of course, now I'm forgetting all of them. While we're uh, doing book recommendations, since we're on this detour anyway, uh, I just started reading Strangers Drowning. Um, oh, Larissa McQuarqua. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. I was hoping you would pronounce her name for me because I have I have no idea. I um, I noticed because I invited her to Yale to give a presentation when I was chair of cognitive science, and she tutored me on the proper pronunciation. I think her book is great, but she does these New Yorker profiles which she does something which is remarkable. You can miss it if you don't pay attention to it. She writes her profiles of people according to the kind of person they are. So, so she writes this profile of Derek Parfit, uh, who had these, these very interesting views about the future and about death and about permanent and personal identity in a style that grants his supposition that we're not the same person over time. So interesting. I hadn't noticed that. I hadn't noticed that. Um, okay, so those are more things that we need to put links to in the show notes. This is going to be a long show notes, uh, but I, I think people will will be into this. Uh, Alexa, do you have any book recommendations while we're on the topic? I just read, um, I think it's called Future Home of the Living God, I'll have to double check, by Luis Erdrich. Um, and it's like a dystopian uh, novel. And I, basically, that's all I'll say, but I loved, I loved it. And it's the first of her books that I read. Um, I really, I really like her style. That sounds great. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds like totally up my alley. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. So this seems like a good point at which to maybe refresh our drinks. How How's your how's people's beer situation? I can get a beer. Yeah. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are still on Twitter at 4 Pod, where you can at mention or DM us. If you'd like to email us, the show's email address is 4 Pod at gmail.com. That will go to all three of us. Finally, uh, the show's website, fourbeers.com, is where you can find all of our episodes, and you can drop us a note there as well if you would like. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please just take a second to rate it or and or review us on the podcast platform of your choice, which just helps other people discover the show. Alexa, any other follow-up that uh, we should mention? No, that sounds good. I heard from you uh, that when you were at SPSB that lots of people knew about your kitchen. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. I mean, so it's sometimes weird, I think, to talk to people you don't know who know things about your life. But the weirder thing for me was talking to like 
good friends of mine who I haven't like caught up with in a year and they're like, actually, we're, we're caught up. <laughs> yeah, right. You don't need to tell us what's been going on with you. We're, we're fine. So, so you were both at SPSB. Yeah. Yeah, we were. The big, the, it's a big social psychology conference. Were you sort of, you know, celebrities, podcast celebrities? Like people come up to you and comment on a podcast? Disappointingly, no. <laughs> well, I, I did have one fun moment where somebody, I was like chatting to somebody for a little while and then a person who was like in the group with us was like, oh yeah, this is like Alexa from the podcast. And then her face was like, oh, from the podcast. That was, that was nice. But she didn't recognize your voice. Right. It's like, clearly you haven't listened to that many episodes. You see, you see, as the podcast comes more and more popular, you're, you'd be outraged. You don't know why. <laughs> right. Like you didn't recognize I can voice. already feel it. You you feel the rage. Yeah, it's already. Like, you've, you've always had these narcissistic tendencies. And this is just going <laughs> to really exacerbate. Um, yeah. I, I had a few people uh, come up and say they enjoyed the show, which was really nice. Um, I also, I always find so these encounters to be so kind of, for me, awkward. Not that they were being awkward, just that I kind of feel like I don't know what to say beyond, oh, that's great. I'm really glad you enjoy the show. And then we're both there and we're like, uh, so. So, yeah, Paul, I mean, I've seen you get recognized. Do you have a script for this or? No, I, I'm i I'm at a level where it, it always, it, it's rare enough that it always surprises me and, and, and pleases me that somebody, you know, saw my videos or, or even recognized my voice, which sometimes happens. Um, and then I'm just, you know, say thank you. And then I often just, sometimes people get nervous and just ask some questions about themselves. Sometimes, often it's somebody young, like 16, 17, 18, who just listens to podcasts and everything. There's, there's, there's this really, one thing they didn't have when I was that age is there's a big, you know, information community where somebody who's just a, a smart high school student can go to listen to this podcast and learn about psychology and and do other things too. And then you just ask, you know, I, I do have a little bit of a script. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like you're more socially skilled than I am. There's something about like being in that situation where I sort of like panic. Like it's the fear that we're going to run out of things to say. And then like right now sitting here, I could be like, of course, here's the like five things you could ask somebody in that situation. But when I'm in it, I'm just like kind of staring at them like, oh. Well, if it's awkward, my bodyguard tends to just shoot away in the soul. Maybe it's extra awkward because you're like, oh, these people are going to think that I'm going to be funny and smart. And then you just And choke. in reality, it's all, <laughs> yeah. it's all editing. All editing. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then there's the stories There's the stories on the web where, oh, I'm, I, I'm at Yoel Inbar. And, and let me tell you, he's not what you think. <laughs> he's, he's a, yes, exactly. He's totally medium, you know? Yeah, yeah, medium. yeah you know. You know, not 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 bad, but but I was expecting so much. Yeah, more. right, right. Just sort of dull. Wait, um, I want to make sure Alexa. that I get credit for my second beer before we start talking. Oh shoot! I'm sorry. I completely <laughs> forgot. What are you drinking, Alexa? Now I'm drinking a peanut butter porter, which is from Lime Creek oh my God. Brewing Company, um, which is in Peachtree City, Georgia. This is like a recurring peanut butter thing with you, huh? Yeah, I'm just. Phasing in, eventually it'll be all peanut butters, peanut butter IPAs, peanut butter porters. It'll just be a jar of fermented peanut butter. You'll be eating it with a spoon. (laughs) Just just sprinkle beer (laughs) over your PBJ sandwich. Does it taste like peanut butter? I don't know. We're going to find out. Yeah, it does. Wow. In a good way? Yeah. Uh, I think that I like peanut butter porters. 
I I mean, like a two out of two, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul, what's your what's your drinks situation? It is it is continuing. I am about halfway down the case. Excellent. This this, this ours. And I've and you? I've switched over to the bourbon. Uh, this is an Elijah Craig small batch. This is like ninety four proof. So uh, I'm gonna try not to chug this. Huh? We'll we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. That's serious business. Um. Okay, uh, Alexa, you want to go or should I? Um, I'll go. So I have a. Uh, I feel like it's a kind of a vulnerable thing to put a book out there that you wrote. Um, I feel like that kind of thing makes some people nervous. And so I was just wondering, do you worry at all that people could um, misinterpret or misapply um, your book in some ways? And I guess I'm asking about this book because we're talking about this book, but I'm sort of interested in the general phenomenon. Um, I think like everybody, I have stories of weird people who write me with either incredibly aggressively or um or can getting totally the book totally backwards and um you know i i wrote this book against empathy right which argued for a rational compassion and a lot of people didn't make it past the title and i'm not sure what was scarier people who said you're a monster for saying this or people say yeah i love <laughs> I, I i like i like what you're Finally. saying there we should all be cruel to each other and say whoa but but for the most part I don't maybe I've been lucky and and I don't want to jinx myself by saying this but but whenever I write a book I get I get the greatest feedback and comments and I don't mean necessarily positive but people I often get emails and people disagreeing with me but it's it's substantive it's interesting it's engaging um I try to res- it, with the exception of with almost no exception I try to respond to every email I get from people with comments I don't always give them a response as long as what they write me but but I, I I welcome it, and I've been I've been lucky. I'm sort of it's it's been a lesson that the world is full of sort of smart, engaged people, and not all of them have psychology PhDs. So sometimes you hear from people for all of my books, and I hope for this one too. People who have no special academic background; they do something else for a living, and they say, "I read your book, and I like this part. I I think you're wrong here." Yeah, and that's just great. So this is sort of an open invitation to our listeners to. Um, you know, check the book out from a library, borrow it from a friend, read it, and then email you. There. <laughs> no, you got to buy the hardcover. Buy it in hardcover from the local bookstore of your choice. Read it, and then email Paul, yes. and he will write you back. Yes, yeah, yes. That's a, he, will, he will almost certainly write you back. Maybe, maybe a short email, but he will write right. you back. Ninety nine percent probability. So, is there like kind of big picture something you hope that people will take away? I mean, this like for some. Readers, this might be their first time kind of reading systematically about the field. Is there like one thing you want them to walk away with? Maybe with the idea, this is kind of cliched, and I don't actually talk about it in a book. A lot of these books have these sort of speech about how psychology is a science. And I, you know, I think I, I actually am not sort of 100% in on that. Sometimes it's just meant to be rah rah psychology. But I kind of want people to pick up some of the enthusiasm. For these questions, for the idea, for all of the different aspects of the mind we could study, and that there's scientific progress on it, and sometimes it's it's halting. Sometimes we don't know as much as we think we do. Sometimes we overgeneralize, but but it's so exciting. I find this. I, I I say this in the book, but I really mean it. I find psychology such a thrill to look at all of these all of these different issues, and 
no matter who you are, you got to find some of this interesting. If you don't find, if you're not interested in consciousness, then maybe you're interested in sexual desire. If you're not interested in that, you're interested in therapies for mental illness. It's just, I wanted people to get some of the excitement. And at the same time, and this is the balance, become sort of good consumers of, of stuff out there. Oh, and be, be, be critical. That is, so that's a great, that's a great segue um, to something else that we wanted to ask, which is that you say, I think this is a quote, um, that there's no shortage of hucksters talking about psychology. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I would love to put you on the spot and be like, who are you talking about? And I imagine you're going to, you, you would dodge that question, but I, I, oh, I yes, a hundred percent correctly. So, uh, but so how can people differentiate the people who are giving them good information from the people who aren't? You know, there's actually people, people have lists online of how to identify a huckster and a fraud. And, and I think some of these advice, the advice is good. Um, my own uh, heuristic here is that when you meet somebody who talks with this extraordinary confidence, and there are people who are far more famous than they ever will be, whose names are almost household names, who get there by saying these proclamations of tremendous confidence about how things work. Let me tell you, um, you should you should kind of run because because real science and 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 particularly in a field like ours has a tentative nature mm-hmm. to it. And and so that's one bit of advice. The other bit of advice, not so much about hucksters, but about things, and I'm curious whether you would agree with me, um, is I would say never, ever, ever, ever believe a single study. You hear a single study saying, oh my gosh, you know, um, extroverts, um, extroverts are less happy in their 50th years of life, that, you know, eating bananas increases your brain power. What enormous coverage of these individual studies. And I think you just ignore all of them and wait for a body of research to build and take that seriously. Does that seem right? I'm not sure that I'm good at identifying hucksters, so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask. Yeah, I mean, I, I to, to me, it seems 100% right in spirit. Um, I, I was just thinking about uh, there's this controversy going on right now about you might have seen news stories about this uh this Cochrane collaboration uh, they do health and medicine meta-analyses about the efficacy of masks uh, and specifically yep. mask mandates yep. right and uh what this meta-analysis uh, is said to show is that mask mandates are fairly ineffectual and and even even not even just the mandates, I think the argument is masks themselves don't work. Well, well, I mean, these are like RCTs where they assign some people yeah, to wear masks. Okay. Not, it's, yeah. So it's not like Fair a enough. lab study where it's like put on this N95 and we're going to put you in a room with somebody who's sick, right? It's like regular people yeah. who are given masks and told wear this mask for the purpose of the study. And uh, there's just I, I've been seeing back and forth Twitter threads. So there was one viral Twitter thread saying like they got everything wrong, and then a counter Twitter thread saying no, the criticism is wrong. And then there's a, a data clada post uh, from today talking about meta analyses and the problems with you know talking about the meta analytic effect size where you're averaging together many things that are perhaps very different. So that even there. I kind of feel like, yeah, it's definitely better to rely on a body of studies than one study. 
But even the body of studies, there's just so much disagreement about yeah. interpretation. And yeah. I, I want to give people some useful advice because it kind of feels like, well, you know, everything is completely fucked. But uh, yeah. even there, there's like huge problems of interpretation. Yeah, I would say that the the body of studies um, becomes more of a useful tool when we have other things in place. Like if if I were reading about a body of studies that were all done as registered reports or something like that, and I know that that format doesn't work for every single kind of study, right? But where, something where, you know, you like can't sort of capitalize on chance when you're analyzing your data and it's going to be published even if the results are null, then you can start to sort of really like rely on these results that are are published. And, and, then, and then it becomes truer that like as they accumulate over time, then I think they become more more reliable and more trustworthy. Um, but if you go back, you know, 15 years before we worried about pre-registration and before we had like mechanisms for getting around publication bias, I think some people have argued that meta-analyses are even worse than an individual study because they just compound the bias in an individual study. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's other considerations. There's also a consideration of what you call consilience, which is often good good results in, in science connect to other sciences. They make sense in light of what we know about sociology or, or neuroscience and so on. I mean, in some way, there's also a sort of, I don't know whether it's Bayesian or a prior probability intuition, where if somebody tells me something, uh, that there's a subtle effect of this on that, and okay, maybe that's true, and there's a lot of evidence for it, I'll buy, I'll buy it. But when somebody says something like, um, and this, and I mentioned hucksters with regard to positive psychology, where some of my best friends are positive psychologists. I think there's some people who do really good work in there. And, but there's also really bad work. And a lot of the bad work is almost has a BuzzFeed-like flavor. So, you know, three, three easy tricks. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you call it? Three. Anyway, um, here's, a, here's a trick to make yourself happy. Do a, do a gratitude uh, exercise every night and your happiness will shoot mm -hmm. up. Um, and I just chose that example at random. I've heard claims about graduate exercises. But if somebody's going to say this is going to make a huge difference in mm -hmm. your happiness, I'm just naturally skeptical. It seems implausible that something like that will work. If somebody told me something like um, having rich, satisfying personal relationships make you happy, I find it more reasonable. It fits with sort of common sense. And, and then I'm sort of more willing to accept it. But weird, unintuitive things, you know. If I read a, a science paper that says sleeping on the left side will increase your fluid intelligence by many points, said, why in the world would that happen? And I just need more evidence before believing it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like prior from common sense, I guess, is what you're describing. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I think, something that puts social psychology in such an awkward position because um, if we're like, okay, well, one of the, the tests for whether an effect is real is, you know, does it seem a priori plausible, which I agree with. I mean, I certainly apply that in my own skepticism about findings. Then it's like, okay, well, you know, what what is the science doing for us, right? And I, I guess the answer is that there are times when we have an a priori assumption about something and then quite a bit of evidence comes out and we decide, okay, the scientific evidence has persuaded me to change my mind from my my initial intuitions or whatever. That's right. And so one of the big findings today from meta science is that people are actually pretty good at predicting what studies right. replicate and what don't. And in some way, that's really bad news because 
if it's just common sense that tells us what's going to work, well, what, what use are we? And I think you're right. It's the exceptions mm-hmm. that are, that are where sci- the science of psychology shines. So one example, I think, comes from behavioral genetics, where it's just so much common sense, and everybody believes it, that you are shaped to a tremendous degree by how much, by what your parents do to you. That's why you're neurotic. That's why you're happy. That's why you're depressed. That's why you're extroverted. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that that's mistaken. But it doesn't seem to be as true as common sense tells it. I did read um, this section of the book where you're talking about how, you know, it goes against our intuitions that parents have this really strong influence on their kids. But you also write this like caveat section. So I'll admit that like I don't like that idea. Um, and it's really popular right now. Like there's like an NPR special on it. And, you know, I hear it. I hear it um, quite frequently. Um so sorry, which, which idea don't you like? The idea that um, parents don't play a big role in shaping their kids. But but you do this, or you have this sort of um, caveats section where you say, okay, maybe parents aren't like making their kids into extroverts, or maybe they're not like giving them psychological disorders or preventing them from getting them. Um, but they're still like forming these super meaningful relationships with them yep. that surely do shape people's um experience in their life in a really meaningful way. And that I, I liked that caveat. I think it's, I think it's an important caveat that, that um, I think my, my, you know, I have two older sons and I was uh, talking to one of them actually right before we, we started the podcast. And, and in some ways I think he was, sh- sh- my relationship with him, it, uh, my parenting deeply a- affected that. And I th- also think some specific interests he has, mm-hmm. um, some specific projects that he works on. But, and I'm just giving this as an example. So, so there's whether or not this is true. And I think it is yeah. true. His personality is in many ways very different than mine. He's very extroverted. He's very athletic. He's quite a jock and everything. At the same time, he's a philosophy student. So there's connections. But the point is, if it's true that genes play a powerful role and parenting plays much less of a role, that'd be a that would fit what you were talking about, which is something yes. which violates common Absolutely. sense. Absolutely, you're right. And that in the end is what is what we're looking for. You know, apparently money does make you happy. Uh-huh. Well, okay, but you know, but but my, my my nana could have told you that. Yeah, yeah. I, I another great example I think is one you mentioned earlier, which is about the reconstructive nature of memory. That's right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think most people intuitively think of memory that way. I totally agree. I think the intuitive feeling of memory is it's all there. So I don't know whether this has been, whether this is just because of video recorders that we started thinking this way and computers, but the idea is it's all there, every experience. And it's just the right hypnotist, the right therapist could give you access mm-hmm. to it. And, and psychology says, and I think there's one more interesting thing that's actually almost certainly mistaken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, okay. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask you, I've heard that you have a podcast coming out. You care to comment? Oh, wow! This is um, this is the first time this podcast will be spoken of publicly. I'm 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 unprepared, but um, but yes, um, uh, David Pizarro, who I know we all know, um, uh, friend of both of you, and uh, and also a famous podcaster for his work with Very Bad Wizards, a popular podcast that goes in some of the same territory you two go. Um, he and I decided to do a podcast. And this podcast is called Psych, which is the same thing as my book. And um, and 
what we are going to do each week, starting on Monday, where we'll drop the first thing, is go through my book chapter by chapter. I say go through the book, but we just hit the topic. So when we get to Freud, which is, I think, um, chapter three, we're just going to say, what do you guys think? What do you think of Freud? And talk about, tell jokes and tell stories and everything. And it's, it's, it could be seen as an add-on to, to the book, but it could also be seen as a, as a way, if you don't want to read books, but you want to learn about psychology, just listen to the podcast. Would you say to our listeners that, you know, they could just listen to the podcast and not buy the book? <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Can you, can you <laughs> we, we can that, do a little. <laughs> you, you could do that if you want to go to hell. But but if you want to be like a good and decent person, listen to podcasts and and read the book or at least buy it. There you go. <laughs> right. Buy a thread in the garbage. Listen to the podcast. Buy it. Just 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 buy the damn thing. Right. Yeah. Buy, buy the book. Buy the book. Keep it on the table so people think you're smart. Listen to the podcast so you can get interesting facts about psychology, and then that's the, the seamless way. But 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 this is a this was David's idea, and I'm I'm very grateful to him. We 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 have recorded a few episodes, and we had so much fun doing it. Awesome. Um, unlike very bad wizards, uh, it does not contain foul language. It is acceptable for everybody. Well, I'm 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 sorry <laughs> to hear that. I'm sure you are. I didn't know David could have a whole conversation without mentioning masturbation, but but apparently does it repeatedly. I assume serious editing is required. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. No, we we tape for two hours, and each episode is twenty minutes long. An hour and forty minutes of David <laughs> <Zara> describing <laughs> masturbation. A lot of dick jokes, and there I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is coming out. Um, it's going to come out March 8th. So uh, listeners will be able to find at least one yep. one episode of this podcast when this, when this right. episode right. comes out. That's right. I, I, and this is so new. I, I assume it's everywhere podcasts are, are presented, like Spotify and Apple <laughs> and Tinder. I don't know what <laughs> podcasts are. I'm not <laughs> Right. Swipe right on site. Right, right, uh, right. Look for this podcast on Snapchat. Um, <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> it's a wordle. It's it's just gonna, it's going to be on a, on the internet everywhere. Alexa, do we want to ask Paul anything else before we let him go? I have a really quick question, Paul. Um, you teach intro psych. You have done so for a long time. Mm. You sound very unbored. How do you avoid getting bored? Well, that's 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 a good question. Um, you know, there's, there's, we're busy people. And a natural tendency is you just, when you're teaching a course many times, you have your slide deck, your PowerPoint and whatever. And then you just teach the same course over and over again. And to some extent, I yield to that. And I, there's a force for inertia where I, where sometimes I don't change things very much. But, um, the way to become unboard is, is, you know, you change the mm -hmm. material. I always, I always have an eye out for studies, for new studies, and also for new jokes, for new stories, for new examples. Um, the, the, I have a lot of AI examples in my, in my next, in my course, even though the AI is in the psychology research, but it bears in a lot of the questions. So, and that, that keeps it, keeps it lively for me. And that's one answer. Another answer is each year students are different. Yeah, right. Sometimes in weird ways. Um, sometimes I have pop culture references that, um, that just, you know, all of a sudden, one year, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And um, and so I have to kind of keep up with a pop culture reference. And that's a horrible way to end. But so. It's really, maybe we can do a little <laughs> editing magic. Look yeah, we can, we can fix, fix, fix that. Fix it but, in post. Um, yeah, fix it in post. That's right. Another 20-minute podcast. 
but uh but yeah i mean do you find do you find you worry about that problem when you teach intro um I don't teach intro anymore, but I do think that I let intro get a little bit stale. Um, but sometimes even, even for courses where I'm changing a little bit each semester um, and then keeping a lot of it the same, I find if I have any like kind of discussion component, um, that usually keeps the experience yeah. pretty interesting for me. So, you know, even if I ask the same question, um, and sometimes I'll change the questions up and try to like, yeah, incorporate new cool examples or something like that. Um, but answers are different. And of course that, that is fun for me. That's right. Things go off in different ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the field of psychology is broad enough that you end up talking about just about everything that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, the book is called Psych. By the time this episode comes out, you can find it anywhere books are sold, buy a copy, buy five or 10. Why not? They, they make lovely gifts, right? They make lovely gifts. They're very, they make lovely, they, they're, you just stack them up on your coffee table. Yeah. It's beautiful. They're great for leveling out furniture. That's, you know, <laughs> that's, well that's, that's right. Insulation. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both for having me on. This has been, this has been, yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Um, and uh, yeah, see, see you all next time.